You're listening to the Belmar Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Belmar or to see our upcoming events, visit belmarchurch.com. Well, happy to see you all, and I love being able to speak, although I miss Daryl. I looked over and saw Daryl wasn't there, and I went, oh yeah, I'm speaking today. Super Bowl Sunday. Yay! Kathy and I are always really excited to see Super Bowl Sunday because it means only a week from now is the Daytona 500. (laughs) We've been studying the book of Romans for some time now, and in fact, we'll be continuing to study it throughout the year. Uh, it's It's an incredible book, the book of Romans. It tells us just what the gospel is, And more importantly, it tells us how the gospel applies to our life and how we are recipients of the wonderful gift of God. The amazing grace, as we sung a little earlier. Our study in the book of Romans today continues as we wrap up chapter 3 with verses 27 through 31. Let me read those to you. Where then is boasting? It is excluded because of the law, the law that requires works. No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. These five verses at the end of of chapter 3 act as a bridge between what Paul has been talking about in the first three chapters and what he's about to talk about in chapter 4. He's about to emphasize faith in chapter 4. But this is a bridge between the two. And I would like to uh, see just what Paul has been saying to us and what he wraps up here. But first, a quick prayer. Father, as we delve into this, we ask you what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and what we are not Make us for the sake of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Clearly, the question Paul asked at the beginning of this is referring to something that came before. We could paraphrase it by saying something like, in the light of what we have just said, what are you boasting about? What do you possibly have to boast in? Well, He goes on to show us that we have absolutely nothing in which we can boast. But because he's referring to this, I thought it might be important for us to take a quick flyover of where we've come so far. Now, this is not going to be a deep dive into three chapters of the book of Romans. We'll be here all day. Um, If you want a deep dive, go to belmar.com and look at the sermons. Daryl did an excellent job. On those. So look at that. So we're just going to do a quick flyover. 
Paul opens the letter by declaring that he, decide, that he desires very much to preach the gospel to those Christians in Rome because he's never been to Rome. We don't know for sure how the church in Rome formed. Obviously, Christians from, from, from the Middle East went to Rome and formed it. We don't know for sure who those Christians were or what they did. We have speculation, but we don't know for sure. And Paul has never been there, so he, he tells them, I really want to come and preach the gospel to you. And he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. This you find in Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. By the way, if you're students of church history, uh, and you look up what it was that caused Martin Luther to have his great breakthrough, all of the articles you read point to this chapter, this verse actually, verse 17. That is what turned the lights on for Martin Luther. Paul is quoting the Old Testament prophet here when he says, the just to live by faith. Actually, that Old Testament prophet, I'm sure you've all heard of him, read, read him, it's Habakkuk, everybody's favorite Old Testament prophet. He begins this passage, Habakkuk does, by saying, and the Lord answered me. So these are not God's words given to Habakkuk to give to someone else. These are God's words to Habakkuk answering a question that he had. And he says, behold, the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. So even in the Old Testament, God is teaching that there's, there's nothing to boast about. The proud can't stand upright before God. It's only those who live by faith that are in a right relationship with God. Paul, right at the very beginning of this letter to the Romans, introduces this whole doctrine of justification by faith. It is what we base everything we believe on, justification by faith. He continues to develop that through the entire book of Romans. But he especially focuses on this in chapter 3, which we're wrapping up today, and in chapter 5. He really talks a lot about justification by faith there. And we'll get to chapter 5 in a few weeks, I'm sure. It's not what we do, Paul is saying. It's not what we do that leads to a right standing with God. Nothing we can do can ever accomplish that. It's a gift bestowed upon us by God because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Again, we come back to that amazing phrase in my personal favorite hymn, Amazing Grace. This grace is absolutely amazing because it has absolutely nothing to do with our worth before God. It has everything to do with God's love for us and his gift to us through his son, Jesus Christ. We read in Romans 1.18, the other side of this gift of the law. Now, Paul has been saying to these folks that you can't, you can't achieve a righteousness before God by the law. However, the people he's writing to thought they could. They believed that they could live lives so righteous that God would have to 
accept them because they're so righteous. And Paul reminds them in verse 18 that this coin of the law has another side to it. And that other side is God's wrath against sin. He says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. You see, the law demonstrates the holiness of God. When God gave the law, he said, this is in essence who I am. This is me. So when we go to Exodus uh, chapter 20 and we read the law, we read the Ten Commandments, we're not only seeing what God is, what he expects, but he's, we're also seeing his standard for our behavior. He says, this is how I will judge you. This is the standard of behavior by which I expect you to live. And he says, if you do this, I'll bless you. In fact, if you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 28, which we're not going to do today, but if you turn to Deuteronomy 28, you find a list of all the blessings God promised for those who obey the law. But there's another list in Deuteronomy 28. And it's the list of the curses that come on all those who don't obey the law. You see, God is a righteous God. And even though he loves us, even though he cares for us and wants us to be part of his family, a righteous God cannot tolerate sin. And there is, because he is a righteous and holy God, there is a righteous and holy wrath to be poured out against unrighteousness, against sin. And Paul reminds people, that's there. That exists. That is part of the nature of God. He is holy and sin cannot be in his presence. If you really want to know about all those blessings and curses, I'll leave it as homework for you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 28 and read those. Paul is reminding his readers of the truth that God's wrath is poured out on sin. He writes that when men reject God and worship the creation rather than the creator, God, and this is a, to me is a pretty terrifying sentence, God turns them over to their own lusts. He pulls his control off and says, that's the way you want it, live that way. And then Paul goes through in chapter 2, and he lists the, the outcome of a society that rejects God and worships the creation rather than the creator. And he lists all of the things we're going to see in that society. Now, when we read that list in chapter 2, we're appalled. It's shocking when we see the things that Paul says a society will do. I want you to remember, this was written almost 2,000 years ago. I don't think we've come very far in 2,000 years. I know that those who reject God want to tell us that there are solutions to all of these problems, most of which are listed in chapter 2, but I don't think the solutions are working. I don't think we're any better today than the society that Paul was writing about in the first century. The solutions aren't working because the solutions ignore God. So we look at this list and we think, oh, man, those are terrible people. But Paul immediately warns us. He says, be careful now. 
For in whatever way you judge others, you are going to be judged. He said, when you start criticizing people for these, for all of these things, you have to ask yourself, have I ever done these things? Now, maybe I'm not as bad as all that, but have I ever told a lie? Have I ever taken something that wasn't mine? Have I ever envied someone? Have I ever coveted my neighbor's stuff? Have I ever lusted after anyone? Have I ever been so angry with someone that I called him an idiot or a fool? Well, we're as guilty as the people who commit all that other stuff. There is no sort of sin. You're either righteous or you're not. When God set up the standard for how we are to behave, it's a pass-fail test. There is no grading on a curve. You either get it 100% right or you fail. And only one person did that. That's Jesus Christ. And it was because Jesus Christ was able to live an entirely righteous life from birth through his death that he could be actually righteous and that we could, by the grace of God, be given that righteousness. Not because we earned it, but because we have faith in Christ. Remember, there is a penalty for sin, and that penalty is death. That's a pretty serious penalty. It's spiritual death. And the problem is not just a problem that the Gentiles had. Paul writes. It was a problem the Jews had as well because they didn't keep the law either. And he quotes Isaiah when he says, there is none righteous, not one. Nobody is righteous. And if you're not righteous, then you fall under the just condemnation and the wrath of God against unrighteousness and sin. That's just the way it is. You're either righteous or you're not. I want to just take a moment here while we're talking about all of this to point out that what Paul is writing about here in chapter 3, um, and this should be obvious, but often it isn't. What Paul is writing about here in chapter 3 is justification. He's not talking about sanctification in chapter 3. If we get that confused, then we fall into a terrible error. Because when we confuse it, it leads us to the false belief that God, when we accept Christ, makes us righteous, sanctifies us. Boom. We're there. And that our acts of righteousness that stem from that makes it possible for God to justify us. As my grandmother would say, we put the cart before the horse. Because it is not sanctification that we receive at the moment of our conversion. It is justification. There is, in fact, a teaching, and it's a Christian teaching. I say that with a small c. There's a Christian teaching that says that man is justified before God because he is enabled by grace to live a good life. And that, plus the new life he receives at baptism, makes it possible for him to live this good life and thereby earn the justification of God. That was the problem the Pharisees had. 
The Pharisees thought that they could live a life so good that they obligated God to forgive them and to justify them. That was their problem. And they boasted in how good they were. Yet, sadly, this is not just a problem with the Pharisees. This teaching, which I just talked about, is and always has been a basic teaching on justification in the Catholic Church. It is what that denomination teaches as the way to justification. And it's not just them. It has crept into the evangelical church as well. When we start to think that God has made us perfect and therefore we can live life so good that God's going to like us and justify us. And by our own efforts, we will be in good standing with God. This, this doctrine was held by a 16th century Catholic priest named Martin Luther. And while he held this doctrine and in fact taught this doctrine at university, he was haunted by a question that this doctrine brings up. And the question that haunted Martin Luther is, if my acts of righteousness are what leads to my justification, how will I ever know if I've been righteous enough? And he searched scriptures. He searched scriptures for years. He taught Romans at university. He searched it for years and he discovered that scripture has no answer for that. And the reason scripture has no answer for that is because there is no answer for that. We cannot live lives good enough to require God to justify us. Paul rejects his teaching out of hand. The original teaching on justification from the apostles was justification by faith. It got perverted over the years. And the big thing about the Protestant Reformation wasn't that they reformed something. It was that they rediscovered what the truth is. The, the Protestant Reformation with Calvin and, and, and Knox and Zwigli and Luther and all of those people rediscovered the original teachings of the apostles that justification is by faith through grace. I love grace. You hear me talking a lot about grace if you know me and have conversation with me. I love grace because if it weren't for grace, I'd have no standing before God. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. But the sin that promised joy in life led me to the grave. And if it were not for God reaching out to me, I would still be there. I love grace. And grace is a major theological point in the teachings of Paul. He uses the word to stress that all that God does on our behalf, everything that God does on our behalf is an act of grace. It is a free gift by God to us because he loves us. It's God's very nature to be free from any outside influence. We cannot compel God to do anything. God acts true to his own nature. And nothing we do, we do requires him to justify us. That's because he chose to do it by faith. 
and through grace. In chapter 3, verse 20, Paul writes, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. That's a pretty serious statement. There is nothing we can do to be justified based on what we do. That is the essence of, of justification by faith. We need grace through faith in Jesus Christ to be justified before God. But he goes on to say in verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ. God was not surprised by what happened in the garden. He did not see Eve eat that fruit and go, oops, I didn't see that coming. The Bible clearly teaches that Jesus Christ was was crucified from before creation. It was God's plan from the absolute very beginning. Before Genesis 1-1, God and his son knew that Jesus Christ was going to go to the cross. This has always been God's plan. And I don't know why. Don't ask me why, because I can't answer that question. But I know that the Bible clearly teaches this was always God's plan. Christ would come. He would demonstrate what a holy and righteous life actually looks like. He would teach us. He would heal. But most importantly, he would go to the cross. And upon that cross, he would take upon himself the just wrath of God poured out on all the sins ever committed from day one to the end of time, including mine. And the only reason that I can be justified before God is because I believe that's true. And I have called out and I have said I believe that Jesus Christ is the one and only Son of God, and I believe that he took upon himself the punishment for my sins, and I throw myself on God's mercy through him. And by grace, free gift, God gives me the righteousness of Christ. Not my own righteousness. I am not justified by my righteousness. I am justified by the righteousness of Christ. Remember, it was Romans 1.17 that revealed to Luther that it was not his righteousness that led to justification. It was God's righteousness. That was a, that was a, a pivotal moment for him. And it was chapter 3 and chapter 5, but mainly chapter 3, that showed him that it was, that it was uh, through his faith in Christ alone, by the grace of God, that he received that righteousness. Paul wants every person to understand that God's way of justifying people by grace absolutely excludes any reason to boast. There is absolutely nothing we can boast in. Paul reveals, remember in Romans 3, 21 and 22, he says, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to this, the law and the prophets testify, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Here, Paul reveals the absolute heart of the gospel. This is the good news. Jesus Christ came and took upon himself the wrath due us. And because of our faith in him, we are declared not guilty. 
not only not guilty, we're declared even more innocent in the eyes of God because of Jesus Christ and only Jesus Christ. We can't even boast about our faith. You ever thought about that? This will keep you up at night. I can't even say, ha, I had enough faith to accept Christ because the Bible clearly teaches that whatever faith we have was also a gift from God. God gave us the faith to believe. And we believed because God gave us the faith to believe. And he gave us the son for us to believe in. Everything is a result of a gift from God. We went on a trip a few years ago um, to, to, where was it? Los Angeles. Fun place to go. But the beach was good. The beach was good. Well, while we were at the beach, uh, suddenly the lifeguards were blowing whistles and telling everybody to get out of the water. And way out there was a swimmer who got caught in a current and was slowly drifting out to sea. And all these lifeguards cleared the beach and they all ran in and they saved this, this person who eventually would have drowned. Now, I think that it would have been utterly foolish for this swimmer to get back to shore and start boasting about his faith in the lifeguard. It wasn't his faith in the lifeguard that saved him. The only thing that swimmer can boast about is that the lifeguard saved him. And the only thing we can boast about is not our faith and not the fact that we've done anything good. The only thing we can boast about is the grace of God and Jesus Christ. Paul says, I don't want to boast about anything except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Not only does Paul teach that this righteousness is available only to everyone who believes, and here was the shocker in the first century, he taught that it's available to anyone who believes. God is the most egalitarian, the gospel is the most egalitarian message ever. Anyone who believes and accepts Jesus Christ is saved. You don't have to be a Jew to do that. Anyone. There is no discrimination in the gospel. Man or women, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, American. Oh, yeah, we get saved. So do Iranians and Iraqis and those dreaded Chinese. Anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ is justified before God. All people. I like what J.B. Phillips says about this same passage. He says, what happens now to the human private of achievement? There's no more room for it. It's been pushed out. There's no room for pride. Why? Because failure to keep the law has killed it? Not at all, he writes. But because the whole matter is now on a different plane, believing instead of achieving. How many of us have agonized over achieving in order to earn God's favor? If only I'd quit doing that, God would like me. Not true. 
Not true. God already justified you. And if we stumble, he still has justified you. When he looks at you, he does not see you. He sees his son. Now, eventually, he will make you like his son. But that's not now. That's later. Paul's principal audience, we know, was the Jewish Christians. And it was that Jewish pride that he was specifically referring to. But this pride of the Jews is representative of all of us. Every single one of us has had times in our life when we say, man, that was good. I did something holy there. Of course, as soon as you say that, it's gone. (laughs) But all of us are guilty of doing that at one point or another because pride is part of what Part of our makeup. Nothing a human being ever does will justify him before God. I'll probably say that again before we're done. I've said it several times, but the whole purpose of chapter three is to show us that we are justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He says in Romans 28, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Never forget that. Whenever you're feeling like you're not worthy of the love of God, remember this. A person is justified by faith, not by what we do. Let me say a quick verse about verse 31 before we move on, because I'm not really going to talk much about verse 31. Uh, It really belongs, I think, as the first verse in chapter 4, because it leads into what Paul is going to teach about faith in chapter 4. But verse 31, the Mosaic law may not, may not play a pivotal role in our justification. In fact, it doesn't play any, law, any role at all in our justification. But Paul does not want us to think because of that, that it pays no role in our life. There is no way we can sweep the law of God under the carpet. The teaching that says, well, I'm a Christian now, so whatever I do is cool. God's going to forgive me. That's not true. That's not what Paul is teaching here. Paul affirms the valid demand that God makes upon us when he gave us the law. He expects us to follow the law. Now, we don't do it. We all sin. And if we don't think we do, you should read Peter, because Peter says, if you think you're not a sinner, you're lying to yourself. Because we all break the law. But God is leading us to a place where that will no longer be true. But we're not there yet. One of the things Christ did was he fulfilled the law. Everything from birth to death was righteous in the life of Christ. We, are, we who are in Christ, therefore, are seen by God as having also fulfilled the law. Because that theological word imputed, God has imputed, means he's credited to us the righteousness of Christ. 
Paul expands on that whole thing in chapter four on the role that faith plays. And we'll get to that later. I'm sure Daryl will do a great job on that next week and I'm looking forward to it. But this righteousness, just to review and close up, this righteousness has a universal application. Everyone who accepts Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior is justified before God. Everyone. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So everyone needs this. There is no one who can say, I, I, I don't need that. We all need it. Now, Paul doesn't mean by this that we've all sinned equally. Obviously, we can, if we want, act like that Pharisee who looked over at the tax collector and said, well, I'm glad I'm not like that. No, we haven't all sinned equally, but we've all sinned. And remember, the passing grade is 100%. We've sinned, and the wrath of God is justly poured out on that sin. Paul, like I said, is, is talking about justification. But sanctification comes later, and it will follow, because faith, genuine faith, is certain to issue works of righteousness. We accept Christ, we are declared righteous, the Holy Spirit resides in us, and the Holy Spirit leads us day by day, hour by hour, to do those works that are pleasing to God. And we can't take credit for those either because it's the Holy Spirit who's doing that in our lives. Sanctification comes. There will come a time when, as the Bible says, God will complete the work he began. There are no sinners in heaven. By the time we get there, we will be sanctified. But that time is not now. Remember, we're not made righteous, we're declared righteous. There's a big difference. We're not made righteous, we're declared righteous. It's not that we suddenly become righteous when we place our faith in the redeeming work of Christ. Which one of us, whether you're a brand new Christian or you've been a Christian for 50 years, which one of us can look at our lives and say, yep, I'm righteous? None of us. If we're truly honest with ourselves, we all know that we haven't arrived there, that we are not righteous, but we are declared righteous before God. Therefore, we have an unbroken relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Romans 1.17, that pivotal verse, which changed the history of the church so much. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. We see the righteousness of God. He says, Paul says, when he writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus Christ took our sin. And it's due to no merit upon us. And therefore, as Paul begins this section, there's no room for boasting. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 
to 10, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is it a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Jesus Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. To be sure, Paul will make clear as he continues writing the book of Romans, especially in chapters 5 and 12, 6 and 12, he will make it abundantly clear that Christians need to be dedicated to producing those good works. James tells us that those good works prove that we have faith. If you don't see works in someone's life, then you have to doubt if they genuinely have faith because genuine faith produces those works. But they're the fruit of faith, not the root of our salvation. They're the fruit of faith. We'll close with this. Galatians says, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ. What else is there to boast about except in the cross of Jesus Christ? For on it he bore our sins. For on it he received the wrath due us. And because he did that, we now have the righteousness that truly belonged to him. He took our sin, we got his righteousness. Amazing trade. Amazing God, how can it be that God my Savior died for me? We should thank God every single day of our lives that he has given us by grace because of our faith in Jesus Christ justification. We are justified before God. We should never forget it. We should thank him every single day. And we should also, every single day, in the words of a song by Sovereign Grace, I think, now I would be yours alone and live so all might see the strength that to follow your commands could never come from me. Oh, Father, use my ransomed life in any way you choose and let my song forever be my only boast is you. Ephesians 5.12 says, Now in Jesus Christ you were once far, far off and have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's all of us. But there may be somebody here who still feels far off. You still feel abandoned. You're separated from God. You don't have to be. That's not needed. Maybe you think that you got to clean up your life to, before you can even come to God. Nothing could be further from the truth. I don't know how much redemptive work that the thief on the cross did in his life, I mean, for crying out loud, he never went to church. He stole. He probably committed other more heinous crimes. He didn't know any theology or doctrine. Just a few minutes before he realized who Jesus was, he was cursing Jesus. And suddenly he's standing in heaven with Christ. I can imagine somebody looking at him saying, what are you doing here? 
I followed your life. You're a mess. What are you doing here? I don't know. Do you understand the theology of justification by grace? Never heard of it. I don't know. It's a mystery to me. Well, how'd you get here? And his only answer could be, I don't know. But the guy on the middle cross said I could come. And when we stand before the gates of heaven, that is the only answer that's acceptable. I don't belong here, but the guy on the middle cross said I could come. So what are you waiting for? If you don't know him, get to know him today. Nothing is holding you back. You can come to him today. I'm going to rely on another song lyric, mainly because they say it more colorfully than I ever could. I don't remember who wrote this one. So lay down your burdens, lay down your shame. All who are broken, lift up your face. Oh, wanderer, come home. You're not too far. Lay down your hurt, lay down your heart, and come as you are. Jesus said, all who come to me, all who come to me, I will no means cast out. So come to him today. Come talk to me afterwards. I'll be glad to tell you all about this, how it all works. Come to him today. Lord Jesus, thank you. You hung on a cross and took upon yourself our, our sins and took upon yourself the wrath that was due us. And Lord, with our faith in you, as we turn to you and throw ourselves at your feet, we know that by the grace of the Father God, we are justified in, your, in his sight. We thank you for that. And Lord, if anyone here is is struggling with that, open their hearts. Show them the truth of the gospel. For Lord, you care for us all. And anyone who accepts Jesus Christ can be saved. Amen.